Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be our first episode on roughly the future of money, and it will be all focused on blockchain. So today's episode specifically is on blockchain. What is it? How does it work? That type of thing. And then next week's episode will be about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And that's kind of where it all began and the most common use case as of this point. And then I'll do an update episode and talk about what the following episodes will be. And they will all be more specific aspects of blockchain technology. And we'll get into that. And so we'll talk about money. We'll talk about the finance side of things. We'll talk about uh, other applications and markets and all kinds of stuff like that. So for this episode today, I basically want to present blockchain in a way that is accessible for those of you who may not be aware of exactly what blockchain is, how it works, how it got started, that kind of stuff. But I also want to present it in a way that will make sure that even if you are aware of most things related to blockchain, if you know what Bitcoin is and that kind of stuff, you can get a deeper understanding of how it all works, how it's all connected, what the pros and cons are of this technology and that kind of stuff. So hopefully it should still be beneficial for you who know what blockchain is, and hopefully it is still accessible for those of you who are not very familiar with this technology. I will start with a little bit of background on predecessors to blockchain and then talk about specifically what blockchain is and how it started with Bitcoin. I'll talk about proof of stake versus proof of work and then talk about some of the benefits of blockchain and what it provides, mainly security, transparency, trustlessness, um, fast and cheap transactions, permissionless access, and I'll also get into some of the negatives related to blockchain as well at the end to wrap everything up. So that's our outline for today. And I'll go ahead and just get started with the first thing. And that would be the predecessors to blockchain. This technology did not just come up out of nowhere. It did have predecessors. The idea of blockchain is basically creating peer-to-peer networks that are not held accountable to one centralized source. And that's kind of the overall idea here. And so when you look at other peer-to-peer networks, there have been many that have existed ever since, really ever since the internet. And you could technically trace other origins even before the internet and going with different technology. But as far as what we're going for today and talking about, I'll start with the beginnings of peer-to-peer networks with the rise of the internet as we know it today. And so at first, there were a few currencies. So kind of like how Bitcoin started blockchain as we know it today, there were a few currencies that started this peer-to-peer technology early on. You had DigiCash, which was meant to be the money of the internet was the idea there. They saw that this was something that needed to happen, that there would be a lot of commerce that would happen over the internet. And this was early on, way before Amazon and eBay and that kind of stuff. And so people did recognize that 
the internet was a technology that allowed for a lot of stuff and it had a lot of potential and it would probably support a large portion of the commerce that would happen around the world at some point in time. And so there were people that tried to get in at the beginning and create currency that would be used here. And Digicash was one of the first there that was fairly successful at first. It did not make it, however. There was another one called eGold, which was a digital currency as well that was meant to be used over the internet, and it was actually backed by gold directly. And it also had some issues with how it was set up and had some issues and it did not last. So the next examples I'll give are not related to currency. So you had many peer-to-peer networks. I remember using them when I was younger, and those would be things like Napster and Kazaa, if you've heard of those. Napster's probably the most popular, and that was one that was a file-sharing platform. So it was a peer-to-peer network where you could share files. And what would happen is mainly people were sharing music files. And so basically, if you heard a song you really liked, you'd get on Napster and other people who had that song and had uploaded it on their computer, you could then download it from them directly. And so instead of having to go to the store and buy a CD, you could just get it for free off of Napster. And that was the idea. And that did expand. That got into videos and other things. So that was basically just a platform for file sharing, and that allowed for a lot of things. But music is what really made it popular and was the main use case there. And the same with Kazaa. Napster eventually got shut down. Kazaa was one of the main uh, platforms that sprung up after that. There were others. I had used many of them at the time because like most people my age at that time, that's where we got our music. You would go online and just download it really easy and completely free, and very little risk. So that was one of the use cases for early peer-to-peer networks as well, was this idea of file sharing. Now, technically, Tor is also a peer-to-peer network. At least there are peer-to-peer aspects with Tor, and that's part of what gives it a lot of the privacy that it has. And we've talked about Tor previously in the dark web, and so I won't get further into that, but that's another example that has some peer-to-peer aspects as well. And that one's actually still in effect. Um, Tor still does exist and people still use it today. So that was one that actually was successful. So those are some examples of some early predecessors that used peer-to-peer networks for different things like money and music and online web traffic, that kind of stuff. So where did blockchain as we know it really come into being? And that would be Bitcoin. Bitcoin is where it all started. It created blockchain technology as it appears today. And that was the beginning. In the episode following this one, I will specifically talk about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies specifically. So I'm not going to get into detail about Bitcoin here. I'm going to focus just on blockchain, which was the technology that Bitcoin used in order to function as a platform and as a network and as a currency. And so that's what I want to focus on here. The idea was that with blockchain technology, Bitcoin could create transactions that were verified, they were secure, and they were permanent. And this was all through a distributed ledger 
And this was something that was permissionless. You did not need to ask permission to join the network. Anybody could participate and everyone could trust that the network was the way that it reported that it was. So to get into that a little more and try to explain that a little more clearly, if you think of a ledger, a public ledger, so basically any business or company has an accounting log of their inputs and their outputs, their assets and liabilities, the money they have coming in, the money they have going out, however you want to look at it, however they have it set up, there is a ledger of some kind there. And that would be an internal ledger specifically for that company. Well, with Bitcoin, there is a public ledger where it is a ledger that records all of the transactions on the network, but it posts them publicly. So as soon as a transaction happens, it gets posted to the network and it will be on the ledger for all the different computers that are connected on this network. So to get into why it's called blockchain and exactly how this works out, the way it happens is that you have blocks of data that are created. And so with Bitcoin, this would mainly be transactions. So it would be Bob sent Alice 10 Bitcoin and person X sent person Y five Bitcoin, and there'll be a group of transactions or data, basically, and they'll be gathered up into blocks is what they're called. And so they'll be grouped together in one group, and you'll have this one group of data. Now, these are all transactions that have been initiated. And in order for them to get verified and posted and to get processed, they have to go through a verification process. And what that looks like is this block of data that has these different transactions in it is sent to the network. And when it is sent to the Bitcoin network, it is then verified by the miners. These are the people that are basically using their computer's processing power to process transactions on the Bitcoin network. They are the computing power and the workhorses for running the network. And these are referred to as miners. We will talk more about miners at another point in time. But the point is there are different people and these are people all around the world. There are many thousands at a minimum different miners that are active at any given point in time. And so it's basically kind of a random sampling. It's not just like five corporations that run all the mining in the entire world. However, there has been some consolidation when it comes to mining and mining companies that have grouped together that are fairly large, but still it is a pretty distributed sampling of people and computers that are processing this network. So what happens is this group of data gets sent, this block gets sent to the network, and that's when miners can verify that all the Bitcoin that is recorded in these different transactions did exist in the original wallets and can be sent to whatever wallets the transaction is saying that they're being sent to. And they'll verify that all this stuff is true and that no one is trying to present any data that is false or cheat the system in any way. And once that is verified by the miners, 
then this block of data, this block of transactions, is posted onto the public ledger. This ledger is continually updated by all the computers that are hooked up to the Bitcoin network. And so as these blocks are posted on the ledger, it is updated on millions of computers all around the world. And so this is a ledger that is very public and very distributed. And so it would be very difficult for anybody to lie about it or say that a transaction is false or anything like that because this ledger and this record is recorded on so many different computers all around the world that it's very secure and very safe and very trusted. Now, not only is this block of data posted on the blockchain, is what it's called, but this block of data is also connected to whatever the previous block was. And that previous block, by necessity, would have been connected to the block prior to it. This is done through cryptography, and I will not get into the details there, but basically all these blocks are connected, and as new blocks are added, they are connected to the previous one. So as you can imagine, the more blocks that get added, the more secure the lower blocks are because they have so many other blocks connected to them that in order to change one block or do something, manipulate or defraud a block of data, you would have to also change all the other blocks connected to it. And so that makes it virtually impossible to do and makes it extremely secure. And when you have all these different blocks that are connected and chained together, then you get the idea of a blockchain. And that's where the term blockchain comes from. And that is what it looks like from a broad view, but hopefully that goes into detail enough to touch on all the different aspects there. Now, Blockchain is used for lots of things. This example was Bitcoin. That was the first use case of blockchain as we know it today. And money in general has been used probably more often than anything else. There are thousands of different cryptocurrencies that have popped up. And like I said, the next episode, we'll get into cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically, and we'll talk about that. But money is probably the use case that you've heard of if you've heard of blockchain, but you're not really familiar with the space. You've probably heard of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and that's probably the most popular use case there. But as you can imagine, this technology of being able to post data in a very secure way that can be trusted and verified and is distributed, extremely difficult, if not impossible, to hack or to change, this could be very beneficial for many industries. And it is used in many different ways. It's used for verifications, for documents. It's used for posting data in a secure way in general. It's used for smart contracts, which are basically autonomous software programs that'll carry out and execute a contract. And we'll talk about those in a future episode as well and go into detail there. There are decentralized marketplaces, and I've mentioned those on previous episodes as well, that are done on blockchain so that they can be trustless and permissionless and truly decentralized. There are voting 
platforms that different governments and principalities have used in their elections. And this has happened, at least as of this recording, it's not a very common thing, but it has happened in multiple places around the world. And so you can see that there are just many different ways that blockchain is being used and being built for many different reasons, and that it is more than just money and cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. That is a piece of it, but that might not even be the biggest piece of it, especially in time. And so with the future episodes, we will get into some of that other stuff. This one will focus just on blockchain and the next one on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So I will retain the focus on blockchain here. So when I mentioned how blockchain works and how these blocks of data are sent to the network and they're verified by miners. There are two main ways that these are verified and that miners achieve this verification and determine who is going to verify each block because, again, there are many different miners. And these two main ways that this is done are proof of work or proof of stake. And there are others, and there are hybrids, and there are many different things. When you get into especially cryptocurrencies and blockchain platforms, there are so many different variations. There are so many different splits off of other blockchain projects, and it just goes on and on. So to focus on what probably constitutes probably 90-something percent of all the different networks, that would be proof-of-work or proof-of-stake. Now, Bitcoin is the most popular proof-of-work chain, and the way proof-of-work works is that when this data, this block, is posted to the miners, there is a very complex algorithm that is sent out, and all of the miners basically race to complete this algorithm and get the correct answer and verify that. And once they do, whoever does that first is the one that basically is allowed to process that transaction to verify that block. And the reason why they want to be the one to do this first and get the rights to process this block is because whoever does process each block gets a reward. And so they will receive Bitcoin in exchange for their work as a miner verifying the blocks and processing the network. So what they're having to do is they're having to work in order to gain this right and get their reward. And so the proof that there is a miner there that's legitimate and they're wanting to participate in the network and they're more than likely a valid player here is that they're willing to use up a lot of processing power. They're using hardware with their specific computers and computing units. They are using energy. And when they consume energy, that costs money. So they're basically investing in order to just compete to solve this algorithm. So basically by being willing to do all this work and process these algorithms and try to be the one who is able to process the next block, they're basically proving that they are participants that at least to some degree can be trusted. Now, that is not the only layer of security and trust that's built into a blockchain network, but that is one of them. And that is how proof of work works. And as you can tell, there is no guarantee that you will be the one as a miner to process the next block. We never know who the next miner will be. We don't know who is going to process each block. So it would be very difficult to 
basically try to stage a transaction and then make sure that you're the one that processes the block that includes that transaction and have that transaction being something that basically steals money from the network or hacks the system in some way because you never know who's going to process each block. There's no guarantees there. And so it's very difficult to try to collude or manipulate the system in that way because it's in a sense, a random selection. It's not necessarily random, but it's pretty close. And it is definitely not something that is predetermined. And so that is another layer of security that's added there. And so that's roughly how proof of work works. Now, when you get into proof of stake, the the idea behind that and why proof of stake got started was mainly because proof-of-work is very wasteful. So these computers are spending a lot of processing time and power and a lot of energy trying to solve these very complex algorithms. And the only purpose in this is to just verify that they're legitimate actors and to pick who processes the next block, and that's about it. And so instead of going through that whole process and wasting all of this computing power and energy, a proof-of-stake chain will require validators to stake a certain amount of their currency. And so in doing so, they are locking it up and putting it up as a reserve and as collateral in a sense. And that can be used as leverage and punishment if they end up being someone who is trying to do negative things to the system here, hack the network, whatever, cheat on a transaction, whatever it is that they may want to do. So if there is a bad actor, but they have staked a large amount of the currency on the network, then some chains will basically take that away from them or wipe it out. And so they basically lost all their money, whether they were successful or not. And it's very difficult to actually be successful in hacking a at least a mainstream blockchain. And so you're, you're risking those funds, number one. But number two, even if the chain is not set up to actually do anything with those locked up funds, those funds are still locked up. And so if you hack a blockchain and you compromise the security of that chain, then the value of the currency used on that chain will definitely go down and probably go down very quickly and very drastically. And so even if you are able to steal X amount off of that chain, it's not going to be worth a whole lot. And you had posted all this collateral up and staked a lot of the currency up front when it was valuable, then you've hacked the chain, compromised security, everybody's selling, and the value drops dramatically, and you lost all that value in that collateral that you staked, as well as whatever you're getting out of the network is not really worth much anymore anyway. So there's not a whole lot of incentive to try to game the network in that way. Basically, if a bad actor is trying to just crash the blockchain and somehow sabotage it, and that's their only motivation, it's going to cost them. And it still may be worth it for them, but at least it is incentivizing good behavior and disincentivizing bad behavior. And so that is the idea behind proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work, you're solving an algorithm. Proof of stake, you are locking up funds. And probably the most popular chain that uses proof of stake, or at least is working on it, is Ethereum. So depending on when you listen to this episode, 
currently, as I'm recording it, they are still using proof of work, but they are testing proof of stake. And according to their roadmap, proof of stake is the eventual goal, and they are getting close to getting that implemented. And that will be the end result will be a proof of stake chain, a pure proof of stake chain. And so Ethereum is the number one for that. Bitcoin would be the number one network that uses proof of work. So moving on to some of the positive aspects of blockchain. What problems does it solve? What benefits does it propose? Well, the first and probably the most important thing would be security. So with a blockchain network, there is no one entity that has access to wallets or accounts. So basically, if I set up a Bitcoin wallet, then I receive what's called a private key, and that's a string of digits, numbers, and letters, and that kind of thing. Different chains use different things. Sometimes it's a passphrase, whatever. We're calling it a private key because that's what it is called. And whatever form that takes, I receive this private key, and no one can access that digital wallet that I created, my Bitcoin wallet, without that private key. So basically, no one has access. I'm not going to a third party that also has my account information, and then they can get in, or if they get hacked, someone else can get in because they have my information. That doesn't exist when it comes to blockchains, at least in the purest form. There are third parties that provide services, and you can go that route if you want. But the idea of blockchain and the idea of Bitcoin when it was first created was to create a permissionless network that is completely secure. And this is one of the ways that it is secure. You are the only one with access to your wallet. And so no one else can get to it unless they somehow come to your house and steal your private key. Or if you save it on your computer and they hack your computer and they know what they're looking for, you know, there technically are ways that they could steal that information from you. But if you want to be very secure with it, it, you can make it nearly impossible. And that is totally up to you as far as how far do you want to take that security. But you are in control of your security, of your wallet, and no one else has access. Another benefit of the decentralized nature of this network and not having a centralized source or hub is that there's no single vector of attack for any bad actors to come in and hack the system, but rather the network is split up so much that it becomes nearly impossible to gain control of that network. So in a totally decentralized system, you might have, let's say there's a million computers around the world that are running a blockchain network, and we'll call it the Bitcoin network to keep things simple here. So there are a million computers running the Bitcoin network, and you, as a hacker and a criminal, you want to steal a bunch of Bitcoin and get rich. So in order to do so, you you can't go to a single company. There is no Bitcoin corporation that's running the network. No, it's these million different individual computers all around the world. And so since you don't have a central source to hack into, you're going to have to basically create one. And so in order to create a group that runs the majority of the network, you basically have to take control over 51% of the network, or over 50% at least. And so that's the idea, is that in order to even have a chance at hacking the system or cheating the system or changing the blockchain or anything like this, you would have to gain control of half a million computers 
individual computers all around the world before you even have a chance at doing anything damaging to the network. So you can see how that would be extremely difficult, and that would not be very realistic for someone to actually do. Not that it's completely impossible, but very unrealistic. Now, there have been chains that have devised different ways of actually making a 51% attack unsuccessful, where you would need more than that. Some you would need up to 75% of the network in order to truly hack the system. There are others that have devised other means that can add a added layer of security in there so that even if someone did gain control of the majority of the network, they may not be able to actually do anything with that control. And so even just at the simplest and most basic level, having a totally decentralized network makes it extremely difficult to actually infiltrate that network because it is so spread out and so disconnected. Now, another aspect here is that even if you do somehow change the blockchain and say you go in and change one transaction where Alice was sending Bob 10 Bitcoin and you somehow changed it to where it says Alice is sending Bob a million Bitcoin and maybe you're Bob. And so you are going to be very happy if you can change this transaction and all of a sudden your wallet has a million Bitcoin instead of 10. And, you know, Alice isn't out anymore. She's still just out her 10 and everybody's happy, right? Well, let's say you somehow were able to do this. You were somehow able to get this posted on a block. What would happen is that as soon as this changed block hits the network, it's not going to be able to connect to all the other blocks because the original transaction, as soon as it happened, it was posted that Alice sent Bob 10 Bitcoin, period. That was posted, that's on the public ledger, and it immediately is on all these different computers. Even if you jump in pretty much immediately after that transaction gets posted and post another one that changes the 10 to a million, it's still going to conflict with the majority of the computers that have already process this transaction and posted this transaction as it originally existed. And so basically what happens is that you still have a complete chain that you have created where your new block that includes the transaction of Alice sending Bob a million Bitcoin, which never happened, but you're saying it did, you might be able to get that transaction processed and connected to the previous block. And so you are continuing the chain that way. But what happens is that all the other computers that process the original transaction have Alice sending Bob 10 Bitcoin, and that's connected to a bunch of previous blocks. Now, at this stage, we basically have two separate chains that have now started and that are now in existence. You have one chain that says this transaction is Bob receives a million Bitcoin, and you have another chain that says Bob received 10 Bitcoin. Well, as new blocks are then created and posted to the network and to the ledger, miners are going to have to make a decision as to which chain that they are going to follow. And they're going to follow the chain that has the most support and probably that has the original transaction if they can determine what that is. And so with this, basically all the computing power and the processing power is going to go towards the original chain that has Alice sending Bob 10 Bitcoin. 
and blocks are going, going to be built on top of that chain at a much faster rate then people will be adding blocks to the new chain that forked off that has Bob receiving a million Bitcoin. Probably people are going to figure that out and they're going to jump ship from Bob's new millionaire blockchain and they're going to go to the original one that most everybody's already on. And so even if we say Bob successfully changed a transaction and is still processing transactions on the Bitcoin network. It's not the Bitcoin network because the main network actually has a different set of transaction and is continuing with different blocks in a different way. And Bob's chain is basically just off on its own and there's probably nobody actually using it. And therefore the Bitcoin, this million Bitcoin on Bob's blockchain is worthless because he can't transact or send that Bitcoin to anyone that's using the main Bitcoin blockchain. It has to be someone that's using his forked version of the blockchain. And there's probably nobody there. Even if there is, is there anybody willing to give him, you know, however much his million Bitcoin are worth? Probably not. And so this is another added layer of security here, where even if you're able to change a transaction in the chain, you basically create a new chain. And so the original chain actually is never changed. If you've heard the term a fork, this is what a fork is. If this did happen and Bob changed the transaction and created a separate chain, then we would say that the Bitcoin blockchain forked. And one fork is Bob's chain and one fork is the main Bitcoin chain. And so Bob's chain is a fork of Bitcoin. And this comes into play, and we'll talk about it in the next episode, when you get into people that want something different than what the majority of the blockchain network is doing, and say they want more privacy, or maybe they want faster transactions, or maybe they want a different verification process, or whatever. But in general, they really like the way Bitcoin works and the way the network's set up. Well, what they can do is use the code for the Bitcoin network and Bitcoin transactions, use Bitcoin, but fork off into a different chain where they add some more layers to the code and add code to the algorithm or whatever they want to do, whatever change they want to make. And they create a forked off chain and a forked off currency of Bitcoin. And this is how many cryptocurrencies have started. Many were a fork off of Bitcoin, and then many were forks off of other cryptocurrencies that got started, but they want to do something a little different. So they changed the code a little bit and then forked off to do a different chain. And that's a different cryptocurrency. And so if you've heard of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, that's exactly what happened there. There was a split there because some people wanted a certain change to happen. Other people didn't. And so basically what happened is that some miners kept mining the original way and some other people actually changed an aspect of the code and continued processing blocks under this changed criteria. And this created a fork of the Bitcoin chain. And so what happens is that you have the original Bitcoin chain, and that's what we know of as Bitcoin. Then you have this fork that changed something in the code for Bitcoin, but it's very similar other than that. And that one is now known as Bitcoin Cash. And they became two separate cryptocurrencies. Both are fairly popular and both actually succeeded. Sometimes forks do succeed. 
Many times they do not succeed. It's a case-by-case scenario. More than likely, if a fork is ever started because someone is changing a transaction or hacking the system, that one is almost guaranteed to not be successful. But if a chain is making a legitimate decision where they just want to go a slightly different direction and they have enough support of miners and people that will follow their chain and help process their chain. Because again, it does take work, it does take energy, it takes money to process a network. And if no one's processing a blockchain network, then it has no value and it cannot be actually secure. And so it depends on why something's forking out as to whether or not that fork will succeed or not. But to get back to the original point of security, the whole point here is that Even if you could change a transaction, you are not changing the original chain. You're just starting a new one, and it's probably not going to succeed anyway. So that's an added layer of security there as well. Now, I had mentioned how the blocks are cryptographically linked to the previous block. With this being the case, if there are any blocks that contain inconsistencies with the blocks that they are linked to then all of a sudden that chain will be forked off and will be rejected. So you have to make sure that not only the block that is getting posted is correct, but all the blocks that it is cryptographically linked to are also correct. And if any of those are changed in any way or the cryptography that links them together is altered or tampered with, then that will get rejected. And so that's another layer of security there. Now, the final layer that I'm going to mention, at least, would just be that there is no government or political involvement, at least not formally. There's no state involved here. So you don't have any issues of corruption, of governments printing more money or creating more money. It can't happen. You can't have regulation come into play that changes the way the blockchain network works or changes the way the Bitcoin algorithm is coded. This just doesn't happen because there's no government involved. And to use the Bitcoin network, you don't need government permission. There is no government. So there is no basically weak link there. Even if your local government completely collapses and fails, it has virtually zero impact on a blockchain network because there's no connection there. It's not a state-run entity. It's not a state-regulated entity, at least in general when we're talking about pure blockchain networks. We'll talk about some other examples later. But that is another layer of security as well, is that it is a totally decentralized, totally private system that is run by the users specifically. To move on from this, another aspect that is a benefit for blockchain networks is transparency. So this is a public ledger. So this means that there is a record of all the transactions and all the data here. With it being this transparent, it becomes very difficult to say that maybe you did not receive the Bitcoin that you truly did receive. So let's say Alice does send Bob 10 Bitcoin, and then Bob says, oh, well, I never got it. Well, you can't say that because anybody can look at this public ledger and see that the transaction was processed and it was completed. And they can see that you do have that 10 Bitcoin. So it's very difficult to lie about a transaction. Alice can't say she sent it if she really didn't. Bob can't say that he didn't receive it if he really did because all of this is public on the ledger. Now, this 
obviously only applies to public ledgers. There are private ledgers and there are private blockchains, two totally different things. A private ledger would just mean that there is some layer of privacy involved so that even though you have a ledger where transactions get posted, it might not post the amount or it might not post the addresses or it might compose many different transactions together where you see many different amounts and many different addresses, but they're not linked together. So you don't know which one went to which. Uh, There's many different variations and many different ways of creating privacy. And so I can't really get into detail on those because that's not the goal of this episode right now. But the point is just that There are privacy-centric blockchains that do not have completely public ledgers and transactions, but even with those, the code and the algorithms are public. And so even if you can't verify that a specific transaction has happened and you can't look and see what these transactions are and who they're being sent between, you can look at the code for the blockchain network specifically. So let's use Monero for an example. That's one of the most popular privacy coins that's in existence today. And with Monero, you're not going to be able to see all the transactions and who was involved with them. So how do you trust the network is the question. Well, the point is that the code for Monero is public. And so you depending on your skill set and your abilities, can look into the code and see how the blockchain works, see how it verifies transactions, see how this privacy protocol works, how it was built, how it's implemented, how it interacts with the blockchain, all this stuff. And you can basically, you can dissect this blockchain as much as you want to and see how it all works, how the internals tie together. And if you can't do it, you can hire somebody else who can do that and verify that for you if you really want to make sure you can trust this blockchain. Because if you can trust the system and how it works, then you can trust that any transactions that happen on the system are happening within this set of rules that this system adheres to. And so with the code being public, and the blockchain being public, and that information being public, you can verify that the blockchain is accurate and trustable without actually having to see specifically what all the transactions are that occur inside that blockchain. So that's the idea there. So transparency can be that you see all the transactions and all the amounts similar to the Bitcoin blockchain, or it can just be that the protocols and algorithms and that kind of stuff are transparent in and of themselves. So the system is transparent and you can verify that way. So those are different ways that transparency is used in a blockchain network. Now, this does tie directly into the trustlessness aspect of blockchain. And so we talked about how can you trust it? Well, the idea here is that if you're using a blockchain, you don't have to trust anyone. All you have to trust is the network, and that's it. So as long as the network is sound and the code is sound, then you can trust that anything that's done on the network will abide by the rules of the network. You can trust the network. And if the network is set up such that you can't be cheated by somebody else, then you can trust that you're not going to be cheated by somebody else. That's the idea here. So let's say that I, Joshua, want to send 10 Bitcoin to Bob. 
and Bob is wanting to receive 10 Bitcoin from me. Let's say that I'm actually buying something for this Bitcoin. I'm not just sending it out of the generosity of my kind-heartedness. But let's say that I am purchasing a movie from Bob, or a whole collection of movies, we'll say, and they're going to be digital files, and I am buying them from Bob. Well, with this scenario, I don't really have to trust that Bob has this movie collection and is able to send it to me, and Bob doesn't have to just trust that I have 10 Bitcoin. For this example, I'm going to use a smart contract. I referenced those earlier, and that's basically just an autonomous contract that is enacted on the blockchain network. So what this smart contract would consist of in this scenario would be that 10 Bitcoin gets sent to this smart contract from one party, and a collection of videos is sent to the contract by another party. And as soon as the contract has both of these two things, then it basically switches them and sends them to the opposite parties. So basically, so let's say I send my 10 Bitcoin to the smart contract first. Then as soon as Bob sends his movie collection to the contract. And as soon as that contract receives the movie collection, verifies it and receives my 10 Bitcoin, then it will send the 10 Bitcoin to Bob and it'll send the movie collection to me. And basically we both received what we wanted. If Bob was a liar and was just trying to get me to send 10 Bitcoin and he wasn't going to send anything, then that smart contract would never get activated. I would send it 10 Bitcoin and the movie collection would never get there. And if it never got there, then the smart contract would probably have a built-in time limit or a clause where I can withdraw, whatever the case may be. The point here, though, is that I don't have to trust Bob and Bob doesn't have to trust me. As long as we trust the network and trust the technology, then we don't have to trust each other. And that is a pretty big benefit here. I don't have to know who the other party is. They don't have to know who I am. We can send each other Bitcoin or cryptocurrency or data or anything over a blockchain and trust that it is there, that it exists, that it got to where it's supposed to go, and that we can receive something from them. We can trust all this because that is how the system is designed and it is built in a trustable manner. So it's a trustless system. We don't have to rely on trusting other parties. We just basically transfer that trust to the network. Now, in other aspects of real life, we have things like checks that we write, and those can bounce. Someone can write a check and give it to a person or to a store, but not actually have that money in their bank account and basically make out with product or services without paying for them. You can do the same thing with a credit card where you swipe a credit card and that money gets posted to an account, but it doesn't actually come out of the person's account that swiped the card. So even if it's your card and you are using a credit card, you are not giving the store $100 when you swipe your card to pay $100. The credit card company is giving the store $100 and then you owe the credit card $100. You could just not pay the credit card company that $100 and all of a sudden you made out with $100 worth of goods. It's going to kill your credit and we have checks and balances there. But point being, 
there is a disconnect there. Cash is a good option if you're wanting to go trustless. So I don't have to trust that somebody is going to give me a legitimate check or that they're going to pay their bill on their credit card or whatever the case may be. If I'm receiving cash, then I can trust it. It is cash and it is good. The problem is that cash is inconvenient. You have to carry it on you. It's a physical thing. Someone can just take it from you and it can be counterfeited. There's a lot, to, a lot of negatives when it comes to cash. But then also it is a government controlled currency. So let's say that your country, your country's government decides that it needs a lot more money. And so it just prints off a lot more cash. Well, the problem is all of a sudden my cash just became less valuable than it was before the government started printing more. I have no control over that. I'm just holding this cash and wanting to buy things with it. And all of a sudden, it's worth less than it was before. That is totally outside of my control. And that is a risk you have with cash that you do not have with a cryptocurrency. In cryptocurrencies, you have set ways that the currency is created. Like Bitcoin, for example, is only created when a miner processes a block, then new Bitcoin is created. That's why they call it mining, because they put in a lot of work and energy and effort and investment. And in return, they receive Bitcoin. So it's just like how a mining company would have to invest in equipment and people, and they would have to use energy and money and physical power in order to get gold out of the ground. And in exchange, they receive this precious metal and they have mined it. And it's very similar when it comes to Bitcoin. That's the idea behind mining. And so with a cryptocurrency on a blockchain network, you don't have the issue of somebody just creating it out of thin air. So again, the trust factor is transferred from a government and from individuals to just the network itself, which runs on a very specific set of rules. And so that is another way that it is a trustless network. Now, another advantage here is that a blockchain network is very fast and very cheap when compared to traditional networks. If you look at, say, a credit card transaction, well, there's a processing fee there that the store owner is having to pay. There are interest rates that you have to pay as a credit card user. When you have a bank account, oftentimes you have to pay to set up a checking account or to get new checks or whatever the case may be. If you're wiring money to somebody or to some account, then there's a waiting period there where sometimes it's a matter of days and a very large fee. You might have to spend 50 bucks just to do a $1,000 wire transaction, and that can get fairly expensive, comparatively at least. There have been Bitcoin transactions that have been a matter of cents on the dollar for transferring thousands of dollars and that have happened and been verified within minutes. And that just doesn't happen on traditional networks. That doesn't exist today. There are other cryptocurrencies that specialize in speed and they specialize in efficiency and keeping the costs down and they can process transactions almost instantaneously at a fraction of the cost of even other cryptocurrencies. So you might spend 10 cents to send a million dollars worth of a cryptocurrency to somebody. Those networks do exist. So it is very fast, it is very cheap, and different blockchains can work on different aspects of this. So they might want to focus a lot on being really fast, and it might be a little more expensive, but 
for a slightly higher expense, you can get a transaction done virtually instantaneously. Or they might want to focus on being really cheap, and it might take uh, an hour or 10 hours to verify a transaction, but it's almost free. It's, you know, a penny per million or something like that. And so there are different ways that they can do this, and different blockchains can set themselves up in different ways to highlight some of these different benefits and work them in the way that they want to do for their target market and for what the goals are for their blockchain. So that's the idea behind being fast and cheap, definitely compared to traditional networks that are very much neither when it comes to this type of thing. Another benefit of a blockchain is that it is permissionless. So basically, that just means you don't need permission. It's not like I have to go to a bank and give them my ID and my passport and all of my personal information in order to open a bank account. And even then, I fill out an application. I'm just applying. They have to accept me. Now, as long as I don't have anything crazy in my history, it's almost guaranteed I'll get accepted, but I do need their permission, and I do need to hand over information for that just to participate in the banking network that everybody else is participating in. And the same is true of getting a credit card or of really getting a job and receiving a paycheck, lots of things like this. You need permission to participate in markets and in the economy and in getting money and spending money and storing money. But when it comes to a blockchain, you don't need any permission. You can, with a click of a button, create a bank account, a digital wallet, where you can store cryptocurrencies, you can send it, you can receive it, you can transact, you can send messages, you can buy and sell things, you can do all kinds of stuff on blockchains with no permission whatsoever. Anybody has access to it, anybody can use it. When you talk about banking the unbanked and people that don't have access because they have bad credit or because they have a criminal history or just because of some random act of bad luck, who knows? But some people just don't have access to the same financial instruments that the rest of us do. Well, when it comes to blockchain, anybody can have access and they don't need anybody else's permission. This is equality of opportunity for everyone. This is perfect equality amongst everyone, and that equality is based on opportunity. Everybody has the opportunity to create an account, to transact, to send and receive, to have access to these networks and these markets and these currencies, and there is no one that's restricted from this. So that wraps up the main benefits I wanted to highlight of blockchains, and we'll get into many of those different aspects in the upcoming episodes as well and go into a little more detail there and get specific, but that should highlight all the main areas where blockchains are very beneficial, especially when compared to today's systems and traditional networks and traditional banks or payment providers and so now I want to mention some of the negatives because blockchain is not all roses. There are some negatives associated here. The first one I'll mention is specifically related to Bitcoin and other currencies like that, and that would be the issue of fungibility. And so the idea here is that public ledgers are not necessarily good to use for money because you don't want everybody to be able to see all of your money and transactions. Do you really want access to all of your bank account information to be completely public? Probably not. And that 
doesn't necessarily mean you have something to hide. It just means that you want your financial situations and what you buy and what you sell and how much money you have in the bank. You want all this stuff to be private. And there are many different reasons for wanting this. And that is a good thing to want. But when it comes to a public ledger, you cannot have that. I'll probably talk about fungibility in the next episode, so I won't go into any further detail there, but that gives the broad idea here. You don't really want all your financial information public. That's probably not a good thing. So again, you have private networks and there are solutions to this, but this is a negative for some blockchains. Another thing would be that a blockchain's code may actually have vulnerabilities in it. And so even if it looks sound and looks good, there might still be vulnerabilities in the code that can be exploited in the future if someone finds them. And so that is always going to be a risk. The probably most popular example of this would be the DAO. So early on in the Ethereum blockchain, there was this entity called the DAO, and that is D-A-O, which stood for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And I will get into those in the future. Those are very interesting entities in and of themselves. But the point here is that this was, I believe, the first one that had ever existed. And what it was, was basically a fund that you would send Ether to, and that's the currency that is used on the Ethereum network, roughly at least. And so you would send Ether to this DAO smart contract, and it would all get stored in one place. And then it would basically be like a venture capital fund in a sense. And there would be different projects that want to get funded. And the participants who have sent Ether to the DAO would vote on which projects to fund and what to invest in. And then they would receive some of the profits from that. And that would be split back up amongst basically the shareholders, uh, to use a common word there. And that's how it worked. And so it was a really cool idea. It was very novel for the time. But the problem was that there was a vulnerability in the code and someone made out with a very large portion of the funds that were sent to this contract. This was such a big deal that the Ethereum blockchain actually had a split. And there was a portion of the community that wanted to basically rewrite the blockchain and say that the DAO never happened and basically restore things back to the point just before the DAO and then continue the blockchain on from there. And that way, the hacker was not able to make out with any of the Ether. They're just going to pretend like it was never stolen and that it never existed. Well, the rest of the community felt like the blockchain was immutable, and that was the whole point. Their idea was that code is law. So we have coded it this way. This is the way the blockchain works. We want it to be trusted. We never want to be the ones who are going back and saying what transactions are valid, which ones aren't, what is the proper state of the blockchain. We just want the blockchain to function the way it's supposed to. So they basically just said that the DAO had a vulnerability. It was hacked. That was their fault, whoever it was that coded that program. And basically, too bad, you know, that sucks. But that's just the way it is. You made a mistake and the contract was hacked and people did lose funds. And that's a bummer, but that's just the way it panned out. We're not going to totally change the blockchain just because something bad happened and someone screwed up on the code. And so what it ended up playing out to be was that that second group that I just talked about 
was what became Ethereum Classic. So that was the fork that said that, yes, the hack happened and those funds were stolen. And that's just the way it is. It's a blockchain. It's immutable. And we're just going to continue on from here and be much more careful with the code that we write and publish from here on out. And the rest of the chain, which was actually the majority of the community, said, we want to go back and rewrite the blockchain, pretend like this didn't happen. And that chain that continued on, basically they rewrote it and then continued on from that point, that is what's known today as Ethereum, as the main Ethereum blockchain. So it's interesting in that example how the main chain is actually the one that changed. And the chain that now has to go by a different name, that of Ethereum Classic, is the one that actually never changed. And it's a continuation of the blockchain from its inception to now. And so that's interesting. But the whole point, to go back to the negatives of blockchain, is that if there is a vulnerability in the code or in a contract, that can have some major repercussions. And in most blockchains, and this has happened later on in the life cycle of the Ethereum blockchain, that there have been other contracts that have had vulnerabilities, they've been hacked, and the chain has not gone back and changed those. And so most blockchains are not going to do that. That's kind of the whole point of a blockchain is that it is immutable. The Ethereum classic side of that argument is the one that is most pure to the ideology of the origins of blockchain. And so there's a lot of risk there. You have to make sure that the code you have is good because if it's hacked, then you're just out. There is no company that can recover your funds. You might be able to get some white hat hackers that can come in and maybe steal it back. I don't know, but it's risky. And so you have to make sure that the code is right. And if it's not, then there can be some major issues there. So that's another negative is the reliance on code and how important the coding is. Another negative is one of the positives as well, and that would be the decentralized nature of a blockchain. I talked about that when it came to security of how important that is and how that is extremely beneficial for a blockchain to be decentralized like that. But the problem is that it makes it very difficult at times to make decisions for the network because there is no centralized source. There is no CEO or anybody in charge that can say, let's do this or let's do that or this team go work on this project and this team work on that project because there's no one running the show. It's all different people. There's different teams working on different things. They're all independent. They might work together here and there but sometimes their incentives may line up and sometimes they may not. And maybe some of the people want to increase the amount of transactions that go through each block and some people may not. So there's an argument there and who's going to be the tiebreaker? Well, who knows? And that's kind of the point is that it ends up being a bit of a majority rules system here where if you really want to make a change, you try to get as much support as you can from the people involved in the network and then you just go ahead and initiate the change. And if you're right, and if people are with you, then they will follow that change. Hopefully everybody follows that change, and that change is then implemented on the entire network. If people do not want to follow that, let's say nobody does, then your change just doesn't take effect and it dies out, and that chain never exists. Or you can have a half and half or a portion of the network that does accept and a portion that doesn't, and then you end up with a fork, like I've talked about previously, where you end up with two totally different blockchains. And 
you know, in some ways that's good because both sides get what they want. In other ways, it's not because the network is now much smaller than it was before. There are different versions of very similar blockchains that are now in existence, and it can just cause complications. It takes a while to work out the kinks and figure out who's going to go with which side and what they're going to be used for, what each chain is going to specialize in, that kind of stuff, which developers are going to work for which side, lots of things like that. So there's a lot of issues there. But the whole reason why all these issues are there is because it's decentralized. So its strongest trait is also its weakness. And that is very common in many different things. But it is very true here when it comes to blockchains. Now, another aspect that is a negative when it comes to blockchain is that currently in today's world, it is basically used as a buzzword and included very unnecessarily in many different formats by many different companies. And it's basically just thrown out there as the, you know, latest, greatest technology. Oh, yeah, we're using blockchain. Yeah, we're we're doing this. We're implementing that. And we have this cryptocurrency we just started. And, you know, people talk about it in order to just generate hype and to get money and to hype up investors. And basically, usually there's not really much going on there. Usually they don't even need blockchain. They're not going to benefit from it. They're just using it in order to hype up their image and their name. And that's about it. Now, there are companies that do use blockchain and are using it legitimately, but there are plenty that don't and just use that as a buzzword. And so that is not a very good thing when you hear the term blockchain. You don't know if it's actually a legitimate blockchain that's being used for good reasons or if they're just saying that to get some hype behind them, or if they are truly using a blockchain, but they'd actually be better served if they didn't. And they're just using it because they can get more customers or more investors. And so the term blockchain is used by many different players, and that can have many different connotations there. Now, similarly to this, there are blockchains that are used by companies that are completely centralized. So there are companies that are running their own blockchains. You can look at Facebook, for example, with the Libra coin, and I know they have a separate entity that's running it, but there is a centralized source there. You have Ripple is kind of similar to that. You've got different governments and central banks that are currently working on digital currencies and government-backed currencies. And all of these are very centralized. You have one source, you have a government, or you have a department, or you have a company that is running this. And so with that, you have all the vulnerabilities that I talked about when it comes to being centralized versus decentralized. There is one vector of attack that someone can attack. If someone does hack a company, they can get the information about the blockchain, and they might even be able to change the blockchain. Or maybe the company just is being pressured by their local government to do something and they change the blockchain because they have complete control over it. And that was the whole point of blockchain is that it can't be changed, but they can change anytime they want because there's just one source that's making a decision here. And so that's another negative. There are blockchains that are very centralized. And so although they still may be beneficial, they still may be playing a role that's good for that company they are not fulfilling the role that blockchain was originally intended for when you go back to its origins with Satoshi Nakamoto creating Bitcoin and blockchain as a way to have a trustless 
and secure and transparent and permissionless use of currency and data that doesn't really exist when you have a centralized blockchain. Now, the final thing I want to mention is, in my opinion, the biggest weakness when it comes to blockchains and different blockchain applications like cryptocurrencies and smart contracts and data storage and all different kinds of stuff. But the point here is that when you create an account, which anybody can create an account, you have complete control over that account. You have the private key. It's totally in your control. So that makes it very secure. But at the same time, that means that you are completely responsible. That's a lot of personal responsibility to give to every single person that wants to participate in this network. So even though it's good to have complete control of your money, you can lose your key. And if you lose your key, you lose your money. And that's a pretty big deal. There have been people that have lost literally millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrencies because they lost their private key or because they stored it on a computer and then their computer got thrown away. And there are some very funny examples. Um, I say funny loosely. It probably was not very funny for them. But looking back for the rest of us, it's kind of funny that someone you know lost $20 million just because their wife threw out their computer. And so there is a risk here, and that is a negative. Number one, because it's a big risk. But number two, because that's prohibitive to anybody that's wanting to join in on everything that blockchain has to offer, but they look at it and they don't think that they want to handle all of this personal responsibility. They like having a third party that deals with all this stuff for them so they don't have to worry about it. They don't want to be in control of the security of their money. They want their money to just always be secure and someone else to deal with that. And so there are third parties that are filling this void, but when we're talking about pure blockchains, Um, that doesn't exist. The users are in complete control. And so although that's a big benefit, that's a big plus, and that's a very good thing, and it increases security, it also increases risk and personal responsibility, which in many ways can be looked at as a negative. So that's everything I wanted to talk about in today's episode that gives a broad overview of blockchain technology, what it is, what it's used for, what the pros are, what the cons are, that kind of stuff. And that should be a good introduction to this series on basically alternative forms of money, finance, markets, that kind of stuff, the future of money and markets and all that. And basically all of this is wrapped up in blockchain. And so blockchain is introduced in this episode. Next episode, we will focus on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And then I'll give an update and talk about what the following episodes will have another one talking about other applications. We'll have a themes episode. We'll have a case study on some more specific projects and we'll go on from there. So look at the show notes if you want to check out the website, if you want to look me up on Twitter or send me an email or go to the Patreon page. That would be greatly appreciated. Or if you want to leave a rating or review, you can do that on whatever it is you're listening to this on. And if you do not have the ability to do that on your podcast player, then you can go to the website and leave a review there. Or if you have an iTunes account, log on there, look up the podcast and leave a review or rating there. That is extremely helpful and beneficial. So I would really appreciate it if you would do that. And thank you for those of you that have. I'll wrap it up there. And I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I hope you come back next time for the continuation of this series on blockchain. Thank you very much for listening and for all of your support of all different kinds. I'm out. Peace.
thank you for listening. Goodbye.